It's discouraging to think how many people are shocked by honesty and how few by deceit. Noel Coward All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. Gandalf, The Fellowship of the Ring We can't be afraid of change. You may feel very secure in the pond that you are in, but if you never venture out of it, you will never know that there is such a thing as an ocean, a sea. Holding on to something that is good for you now may be the very reason why you don't have something better. See Joybell C. Truth without love is brutality, and love without truth is hypocrisy. Warren W. Wearsby. I think that little by little, I'll be able to solve my problems and survive. Frida Kahlo. We are all hypocrites. We cannot see ourselves or judge ourselves the way we see and judge others. Jose Emilio Pacheco. One of the most important things you can do on this earth is to let people know they are not alone. Shannon L. Alder. So don't be afraid. You are worth more. Jesus. So do not be afraid. You are worth more. Do not be anxious. You are worth more. Do not stress. Do not fret. Do not move in fear. You are worth more. Luke 11, verse 53. And when he had departed from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to oppose him fiercely and to interrogate him on a great many many matters, lying in wait for him to catch something out of his mouth. And then into chapter 12. Meanwhile, as the thousands in the crowd had gathered, had congregated so that they were treading on one another, he began first to say to his disciples, guard yourselves from the yeast of the Pharisees, which is dissemblance or hypocrisy, or saying one thing and living a different way. There is nothing thoroughly veiled that will not be unveiled or hidden that will not be known. Thus, the things you said in darkness will be heard in the light and what you whisper in private rooms will be proclaimed on the rooftops. And I say to you, my friends, to you, do not fear. Do not worry. Do not be afraid of those just killing the body and thereafter having nothing more that they can do. But I shall show you whom you should fear. Fear the one who, after killing, has the power to cast one into the veil of Hinnom. Yes, I tell you, fear this one. But are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And yet, not one of them is forgotten in God's sight. Rather, even the hairs of your head have all been numbered. Do not be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. But I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will acknowledge him before the angels or the presence of God. And the one denying me before men will be denied before the angels or the presence of God. And everyone who will speak a word against the Son of Man, it will be excused him. But the one blaspheming against the Holy Spirit will not be excused. And so when they bring you in before synagogues and rulers and authorities, do not worry. Do not be anxious. Do not be afraid about how or what you may answer in defense or may say. For in that hour, in that moment, in that season, the Holy Spirit will teach you the things that is necessary to say. 
So it was the early 2000s. I was uh, at a church in Southern Ontario and we had just gone through a massive reshuffle in the life of our church and the discipleship model of our church and also like in the leadership of our church. So we had a particular leader or group of leaders who thought we were going one way, were called or uh, exited another way. And there were just a few of us in a very large church trying to sort out like, what does it mean to follow Jesus together? What does it mean to show a way of life that like frees people up, doesn't weigh them down? And so we actually adopted this model that was very familiar in the early 2000s around discipleship, what it means to actively follow the way of Jesus in everyday life uh, that was centered around like um, base paths. So step one, first base, step two, second base, step three, third base, and so on and so forth. And you kind of walked through these steps in your discipleship journey. And along with that, we had these covenant classes and also membership classes. And the membership classes were like step two and three. So you'd kind of cross the line of faith and now you were learning like the steps at what it took to kind of like embody this together. And I'll never forget, we had a couple new people who started showing up even in this weird uh, kind of sketchy season uh, in the life of our church. Um, and this one guy in particular showed up in one of our membership classes that I was helping to facilitate. Uh, and it was about an hour long, and we, we went to this Q&A session, and some were like, well, what about this? Like, what do we believe about this? What do we believe about this? And then this gentleman put up his hand really humbly and quietly and said, I mean, I'm, I'm here, I'm in, but this seems like super complicated. Like, shouldn't it be simpler? Shouldn't the way of Jesus free us up, not like weigh us down? Shouldn't the way of Jesus be light and not heavy. Isn't there like a better, simpler, more tangible, tactile way to do this? And I remember thinking, whoa. He said, what? Huh. Is that what we're doing? In the life of our church at the time, are we freeing people up into the life of God or are we weighing people down? So welcome to uh, our series Afraid of the Dark, where we're leaning into this question of how do we become a church that lives in the light? If you're here for the first time, uh, this is like, we have been through such a journey, obviously, as a church and all through, through, the, through the series where uh, myself and Carmen and Quincy, our teaching team, have really been uh, leaning into Luke 11 and 12. And it didn't come in any sort of plan or process similar to the story that I just shared when we organized this series, we were thinking some different ideas in Luke 11 and 12, the genius of Jesus in both rebuke and correction, uh, but also in gentleness and encouragement and hope. And so just by way of reminder, I'll remind us week one was lamps and switches, like what Quincy led us through so well, what, what would it look like if we, if the light was fully exposed in our life? If all the lights were turned on, what good work and correction would be illuminated. And then uh, last week we talked about uh, the woe section in uh, um, Luke chapter uh, 12, woes and worries. What would our church and our lives look like centered on prayer and communion of God? If we were a movement of prayer that wasn't just like screaming or, or, or rolling along unknowingly, but like tapping into the voice, the presence, the spirit of God, communion with God, even in trouble and stress. And then today we wanna talk about hopeful encouragement. And this is Encouragement Sunday. This is Encouragement Sunday. Are you ready? This is Encouragement Sunday. Are you ready? Turn to somebody next to you and say, this is Encouragement Sunday. I am ready. Yes, very good, very good. So hopeful warning, what would it be like if we were able to let go of our spiritual and emotional baggage and worry and stress 
and anxiety instead lived in the slow love and grace of God that frees us up and doesn't weigh us down. And maybe you felt that way this month, this week, since March, since December, since last March, since the March before that. Maybe as part of our church, faith feels hard right now for you. Community feels complicated. It just feels like we're screaming around the base path and you're asking the same questions that I am, that Laura is, is like, shouldn't this be easier? Why does faith in God or communion with God in a church community feel foggy or heavy? I feel like this is a right turn for us in this section of scripture and for our series today where Jesus leans into the heaviness of God and reminds us that communion with God should free us up, not weigh us down. Let me repeat that. The life of God through correction, through rebuke sometimes should still free us up and not weigh us down. And if in your individual life or if in our corporate communal life as a church, we are getting more and more weighed down and not freed up to live in the love and grace of God, we are doing it wrong. Communion with God should free us up, not weigh us down. Now we've been focused uh, in our attention in, in Luke's gospel. Now this sort of like woe section that uh, Jesus walks through, his rebuke of the Pharisees appears in a number of the, uh, the gospels, all with different nuance. And Luke um, is the writer of Luke Acts. So he's, he's not one of Jesus' direct disciples. He's sort of categorizing and historically going over the events of the life and teaching of Jesus uh, with the witness of the disciples and just trying to go plot by plot, dot by dot uh, through what's happened. He also is the, the, the recorder of, of Pentecost, right? So this event in Acts chapter two, where all of these different people from different languages and tribes and ethnicities, a very diverse group of people are gathering for a festival and the spirit of God descends on them, gives them the language to speak and to commune with each other, frees them up from religious division and starts the early church, the ecclesia, the people who are called out from the way that was into this new way that will be. Fascinating stuff, fascinating stuff, because communion with God frees us up and doesn't weigh us down. Now, a little bit of context for, um, so like Carmen mentioned uh, last week, Jesus gets invited to a Pharisee's house, so a religious lawyer, and they sit down for dinner. He's invited for dinner. Jesus blasts past the, the uh, cleansing rituals, uh, likely doesn't eat dinner, is kind of has this weird argument, gives all of the woes, all of the woes to you Pharisees, you do this and you do this and do this and you make it harder for people to see God, I'm here to clear things up. He likely doesn't eat a meal with them, goes right back out. The Pharisees are like, why are you being so mean? You should be nicer to us. We're just trying our best. Jesus has no patience for them. And then he moves out into the crowd. Now, did you notice uh, what happens in the beginning of Luke chapter 12? Jesus heads out from the most religious uh, uh, um, elite person's home and what has started to happen? Did you catch it in the text? Thousands have started to gather. So many that, that they're trampling over one another. And Jesus doesn't avoid the crowds, which the Pharisees were known to do. Well, I'll have no part of the crowds. Show me where the most religious people are. Let's make sure we're codifying religion properly, where we're adding the rules and categorizing the rules around a base path properly. But the crowds just don't get it. The pagans don't get it. The Gentiles don't get it. And even these young disciples of this rabbi don't get it. Jesus heads out to the crowds 
and speaks first to his young people, to his first followers of, you know, who, who, who are these people? What is the danger when we codify religion? All the while, the religious leaders are starting to set, they're, they're angry. They're ticked off at this rabbi, this new way that actually lightens the load, doesn't codify it. And they start to set traps. They start to set traps. How will we catch this guy and eventually kill him? Which Jesus knows where he's headed, right? So this Jesus ministry starts in Galilee. He's on the road in Luke chapter 12 to Jerusalem, uh, visiting you know, different sick people, uh, different people who have been ostracized or marginalized by religion in particular. And Jesus teaches a new way of understanding how and who and what the life and faith of God is. So he heads out into a massive crowd that's hungry to hear and learn what just happened. And what does Jesus do? Does he say, here's how to understand the Father God. Here's how to understand the sacrificial system. Nope, he teaches them about worry, about anxiety, about dealing well with the pressure of life as it is. He teaches them about stuff and the harm of worry. He gives them a broader perspective on the life and now presence, presence of God in, with, and through them. And then he talks about the Holy Spirit, which is fascinating, absolutely fascinating. Now, as a reminder, as a young Jewish boy or girl, or even as an adult, would you have any concept of like, well, the Holy Spirit lives, indwells, his presence lives within me? Absolutely not. The notion of the Holy Spirit was like a one or two times special anointing gifting for a specific purpose. So in Old Testament history and theology, when you heard about the spirit of God, it was for a special, a special message or a special anointing or a special event. And Jesus says, yes, now and forevermore. Yes. The spirit of God lives in you, lives in you. The spirit of God doesn't just point you to church or to temple or to synagogue or to sacrifice. The spirit of God lives in you lives in you and you are the active working. You're the mobile, physically embodied church that moves around and blesses the world, which is the beginning of this covenant that God started with you. He talks about the Holy Spirit that the caregiver, so the Greek word is actually like paraclete or counselor, caregiver, guide. It's like a, it's like a high school guidance counselor that's like helping you to gently orient uh, your steps and that this counselor, this caregiver, this paraclete will be with them, with them. Gentiles, Jews, pagans, young people, old people, the spirit of God will be with them, even in the face of trouble and suffering. Such an encouragement and so new to the ears of these first followers. The spirit of God will be with them. Brothers and sisters here at the meeting house, here in Oakville and across all of our locations, if you forget everything else that happens in these next 20 minutes, remember this, the spirit of God, the caregiver, the counselor lives in you, lives in you, is caring for you, for me, for us, is leading us towards righteousness, righteousness through gentleness and not religion. God continues to move with us. Counseling, correcting, rebuking, caring for us, even in trouble and stress and suffering. 
God is not about weighing us down with arbitrary rules that harm our spirits, but guiding and correcting and freeing us up to live in the love and grace of God, even through crappy seasons of life, crappy discoveries for us as a church. What looks like a bleak future can be something that's absolutely, absolutely redeemed by the spirit of God that's moving in and through us into the future by freeing us up, not weighing us down. Okay, so what's Jesus super ticked off about here? It's insiders. There's a great book that uh, a number of years ago, a pastor friend of mine wrote, and I think it's like, yeah, so on point for today that Jesus wants to save Christians. The common rebuke of Jesus at his time for people who he pointed the finger at, chastised and corrected them was not people who were far from God. It was the most religious people who had, who had codified religion into a certain way, into a certain filter, through a certain gel, through a certain, a certain lens and said, everybody needs to conform to this way down to the minute detail. And Jesus says, I have no patience for you. You codify God, you categorize the life of faith and you make it so difficult for people to adhere to it, to even understand it. You create a dizzying base path that people just wanna tap out and leave. And these were the Pharisees. Now, like any, I would contend, religious movement, it never started this way. So before we like throw too much smoke at the Pharisees, like the Pharisees were actually uh, initially like a movement that Jesus would have been like out of the same tradition. So the Pharisees were a group of people that believed in holiness. So when, was being set apart, which is what the word holy means, being set apart called according to a purpose. And so the kingdom of Israel would only come as a result, the dominion, the, the presence, physical, tangible, tactile kingdom presence of Israel would only come as a result of widespread holiness, living different than the Romans, the pagans, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, and on and on it goes. If we live different, if we continue to be a blessing to the world, then the kingdom, the presence, the eternal presence of God will come like a storm, and Israel will be placed up into her rightful place, which is, which is at the top. But what we miss in that journey is, well, okay, what do you do when you get to the top? It's to be a blessing, is to aid the world, not harm it. And to the Pharisees, their job, they felt, was to codify religion, was to orient towards more detail and more detail and more, de more detail and to follow the law to the nth degree so that in any scenario that you found yourself, you would not be in danger of getting it wrong and therefore offending God or offending Torah. And so the Pharisees started in a good way, in a way that said, we want to get this right. We wanna understand the law properly so that therefore we can understand the transcendent presence of God properly in our own context. But when religion kind of runs amok, it becomes a cancer. It becomes, it becomes something that kills and doesn't care. And so this is what Jesus is rebuking in, in chapter 11 and 12. Now the, the Pharisees themselves at the time, they weren't just, they, they had morphed into more than just um, a religious movement. They were, they, it was like the marrying of religion and politics. They, they were able to uh, influence the political world at the time, including um, Rome. They were also a social pressure group. They were like uh, ancient CrossFitters <laughs> that were like, this is how you do it. This is how you do it. This is how life has to be uh, oriented. And Jesus saw that the combination of these forces was not helpful. It was harming people and turning, turning them away 
from the love of God and the, the, the love of neighbor, which is the basis of the law. He says, you weigh people down, you make it heavy. In one of the gospels, he says, you make people twice the sons of hell that you are. Like you cross land and sea to make this happen and actually you push people away, you drown them, you don't help them float. You instill constant worry and fear with this like sense of religious idolatry and it's not the way of God. And Jesus then moves into the crowd, moves into the crowd and says repeatedly, what? Here are the new set of rules. Here's the new way to do it. Open up your Bibles and your scrolls. Nope, none of it It says, do not be afraid. Do not worry. The active presence of God will care for you and give you what you need. The active presence of God lives within you. He will care for you. He will counsel you. He will move you towards holiness and righteousness. And he will even give you the words to say when you face distress and division. Do not be weighed down by the emptiness of this religious framework or by these religious leaders. It's not where God is. It's not what God wants for you. Brothers and sisters, do not be afraid. Do not worry. The life of God should free you up, not weigh you down. Now, what's this business about worry? What are they afraid of? It's fascinating in the text. Jesus moves on then to give instruction. So he, he, for sure, there's some spicy language. If you notice, he talks about like the, the veil of Hinnom or the English translation is hell. And there's so much there. It actually just means like cast out. You're like, you're sent into the dump. And he talks about like, don't be afraid. Do not worry. Do not worry. Don't, don't, don't take on the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy, saying one thing and doing the other. It's not the way of God. And don't be afraid of like when your life is threatened, which by the way is where Jesus is headed. He knows he's headed towards Jerusalem to die. He's giving up his life. So this is not like coincidence. He's saying something intentionally. Do not worry and do not fear those that are able to kill the body, which the Pharisees did. They married politics and there's a number of historical records of Pharisees and uh, different religious movements that had people killed for thinking the wrong thing. Do not worry about those that can threaten and kill the body. Instead, and at this point, I envision him like looking back towards the Pharisees who are setting traps and said, y'all should worry. Y'all should worry about after like the killing is done, the the greater power that is able to like cast out your soul, that the presence of God departs from you. If there's anybody that should worry, it's the religious people. It's not the people who are spiritually curious and hungry to come close to God. And then have you noticed what else does, does he talk about? He talks about, are not five sparrows, uh, sparrows worth five cents? That's random, right? Now, first of all, it's fascinating. Uh, like, okay, pop quiz. Where are birds? It's <laughs> not a sure question. Where are birds? Up. Right? Birds are up, not down. Birds are free to float. They're, the creative, they're, they're part of the created order of God that are up and free, enjoying the life of God holistically. They're not weighed down by religion. Now, it's also fascinating. Sparrows in particular, or small birds, were the cheapest uh, version, were the cheapest thing that you can buy as part of the sacrificial, uh, sacrificial system as a Gentile. 
Amazing, the genius of Jesus, the genius of Jesus. He says, like you poor people on the outskirts, the marginalized by faith, the only entry point that you can have with little money is to buy these birds and kill them. And God says, enough, I don't need that. Think of like how cheap this is. And you think it's your entryway into the outer courts of the temple to give sacrifice and atone for your sins. And God wants none of it. Think about how much God cares for the birds of the sky and how much more he cares for you how much more he cares for you. And so, brothers and sisters, do not worry about religion. Do not worry about the religious rules and the codification of faith that has nothing to do with the life of God. Do not worry when your body is threatened, when your institution is threatened, when, when your, your home life is threatened. God will deal with that on its own. The spirit of God lives within you, cares about you. Think about these sparrows that you think is your access point to God. Forget about that. He cares about you so much more. And even when you fall into a season or a day or a week where you are in stress and brought before religious rulers and authorities, and you're thinking, what am I going to do? Know that the spirit of God, the active, loving, parental presence of Jesus lives within you and will give you the words to say. God will give you the words to say. And what is God saying? That religion is not the way. That the way of God is intentional, full of grace, and that God moves slow. The way of God is intentional, caregiving, correcting, loving, and that God moves slow. Let's read verses 11 and 12 together again. But I have to wait for them to come. (laughs) (laughs) And when they bring you in before synagogues and rulers and authorities... Do not be anxious about how or what you may answer in defense or may say, for in that hour, the Holy Spirit will teach you the things it is necessary to say. Good morning, my name is Laura Jory, and I'm one of the Kidmax leaders here in Oakville. Uh, And Jimmy invited me to join him for this last section of our morning together uh, because of some of the learning that I have been doing with God in my own life over the last year, uh, because of some of the things that Jesus has been teaching me about how he moves in this slow way. And so often when we find ourselves having come through uh, warnings, having come through encouragement, uh, we're kind of ready to be done. If we have been in a season of difficulty or a season of challenge, we might receive some teaching from that. We might receive the encouragement of God, but then we're ready to be finished. We don't want to stay in a place of difficulty. We want it to be over. We want resolution. We want results. At the very least, We want next steps so that we know how to move away from difficulty back into something that is known, back into something that is good, back into something that is whole. But as it happens, the way that God moves us through that process, through that season, is almost always much slower than we would choose. And this slow way of God, of moving us through, is not an accident, it's not a punishment, 
It's not a consequence, although sometimes it feels that way to us. In fact, this is the mercy of God. This is God's love for us in action, the slow way through. And verse 12 says that when we're in a certain place, when accusations are coming at us, when difficulty is around us, when we don't know what to do, it's in that moment that we can be sure the Holy Spirit will teach us what to say and what to do in that time. Not maybe when we want it, but when the time is right, the Holy Spirit will always give us what we need. And so in the slow way of God, we can learn these three things, the kindness of God, dependence on God, and the presence of God. And so starting with the kindness of God, when we're in the slow way, we're in this roundabout way of getting to where we want to be, of getting to that end result that we would desire, we can learn to see it as a kindness because it's on the way that God will teach us the things that we need to know. On the way, God will prepare us for what is ahead and we have time to practice. If we simply took the most direct way or we just were at the end result, we miss the middle. And it's in the middle that we learn what it means to trust Jesus exactly where we find ourselves, not just at the result. In the way through is where we can learn to trust the kindness of God for us. But we do have to trust it. And how we experience that middle will very much depend on what we believe about God's heart for us, what we believe about who we are made to be as God's children. The second thing that we learn is dependence on God. Often uh, this middle place, this slow way of God results because we are not in control. We're no good at choosing the slow way. (laughs) We always want things to be fast. We want it to be done. And so often the things that will result in us experiencing God's slow way is something that we wouldn't choose, something that's out of our control. And that has certainly been the case in my recent experience. I know I've had the opportunity to share with many of you in our Oakville community. Um, Last year, I was diagnosed with breast cancer, suddenly out of the blue, and so began a year of treatment, a year of surgery, a year of recovery, a year of slowness. (laughs) And this was not a slowness that I would choose. I wouldn't choose it now. I wouldn't choose it for anyone. But it is a a place where I learned dependence on God in a new way that I had not experienced before. When our bodies are unwell, when we're unable to continue in the capacities that we have previously, when the usual things that we would do to cope, to carry on, to continue, just are not an option anymore, when we come to the very end of ourselves in every way, this is where we can learn a new dependence on God with us. And it feels like it will be a terrible place to be in our minds. Why would we want to come to the end of ourselves in every way? But in fact, my friends, I can tell you, it is a wonderful place to be Mm. when we realize our need for God in this way. When we trust the kindness of God with us, when we realize that we are not able to do it on our own and we come to Jesus with the truth of those things, this is the place 
where we can receive the abundance of God's presence with us, where we can say, yes, Jesus, I need you. And that is a good place to be. And isn't this exactly where we find ourselves, where we find ourselves as a church, not well in our body, not able to carry on the way that we were before. The methods, the capacities that we previously maybe were leaning on are not going to cut it anymore. And this feels like a terrible place to be. And certainly the method of getting here is not anything that anyone would choose, nor is the pain and awfulness something that God desires for us. But as we find ourselves now in this place of need, we can choose dependence on God. We can say, this is where we really are, unable to continue without you, Lord. Will you come and show us what it means to say yes to your spirit in this moment? in this difficulty. And so we have a choice. We have a choice about if we will let the difficulty cause anxiety, if we will let the difficulty cause um, division amongst us, if we will let the difficulty um, cause us to feel burdened, isolated, or we can choose to say, Jesus, we need you. We want to rely on your presence instead. The last thing that we learn then in the slow way of God is the presence of God with us. Because as we're on this slow way, the roundabout way, the way where God is teaching us more of himself, we're never alone. We're never alone in that place. God is with us. And as we said in verse 12, the Holy Spirit is given to us as a gift. And in the moment that we need to speak, in the moment that we need to act, the Holy Spirit will show us the way. And the slow way of God gives us the space that we need to practice paying attention to the Holy Spirit with us, to not do it in our own capacity, to not do it out of our own knowledge or experience, but to be so attentive to God's Spirit with us that we are listening to His leading, that we are abiding in the Spirit, staying in the pace of God. And we cannot do this in a hurry. We cannot do this by accident. We have to give our attention. We have to slow ourselves down so that we can notice, so that we can turn aside to the things that God is doing and let that have our full attention. And so we pray that together we will say yes. Say yes to the slow way of God. May we trust the kindness of God in this slow way that his heart is for us. May we grow in dependence on the spirit as we come to know our own need that it will turn our attention to him. And may we practice the presence of the Holy Spirit with us, giving him our attention always first, knowing that he is with us and for us always. And may we know that the grace, the love, the presence of God is nowhere else but with us. May you, may we be reminded of the love, the gentleness, the correction, and the set apartness that is the church. And may we paint a different picture in our personal lives and as a church of a faith journey that frees up and that does not weigh down. And together, in one voice, we said, Amen. Amen.